On this episode of The Jukebox, we had the pleasure of talking to Sue Alcock, the inaugural director of the Joukowsky Institute for Archaeology in the Ancient World here at Brown University. She's well known for her work on the archaeology of memory, particularly in Roman Greece. She recently returned to the Institute for a workshop on the comparative study of memory in the ancient Mediterranean, and we had the chance to sit down with her for an interview. We had a wide-ranging discussion about her career as an archaeologist, from doing survey archaeology to teaching a massive online open course to providing leadership for an archaeology program in its earliest stages. One is, is actually very distinct to the Joukowsky Institute because somehow at a very early unwise stage, uh, I, uh, I would, uh, at our graduate perspectives weekend, I would dance to um, stop in the name of love, complete with really hokey, hokey hand gestures. And I'm also sorry to say this occasionally happened on a table, a uh, very low table, thank God, but it, it did. And this became sort of a, you know, okay, it's time to get Sue on the table dancing. The to table stop. still exists. In, it's, <laughs> yes, it, uh, you know, yeah, they had, we, we uh, the table in question was made out of wood salvaged out of the renovation of the Rhode Island Hall, the building the Joukowsky Institute is in. And uh, they said, what do you want out of this wood? And we said, well, they said, we want a table for Sue to dance on. And they took it very seriously. So they, yeah, how hall, high, t- you know, how, you know, how high up? And they, you know, they put in um, probably more support than was particularly <laughs> flattering. But uh, so there's the table. And so I do stop in the name of love. That's great. And we'll definitely get to that. Okay. Uh, but I think we want to start earlier in your life. Uh, okay. Uh, and ask about... Uh, where your interest in the past first came from, you know, in doing this podcast, we've discovered for some people it's language study, for some people it's trips they took as a kid. So we're wondering, you know, was it in high school, college, where where was it and how did it develop for you? I was an early adopter and I think quite a few archaeologists are um it's kind of in family lore that uh, we all sat down and watched a documentary on Louis Leakey and Mary Leakey's work at Olduvai. And according to my mother, the very next day, my brother and I were out in the backyard with teaspoons and digging up and, you know, we found a bone the dog had buried or something like that. And, and you know, according to her, and as far as I can remember, all I've ever wanted to be is an archaeologist. That probably goes back to age six or seven, wow. something like that. So it was, it was early. Um, I think something that, shall I say, re-stimulated it was uh, my dad worked uh, in in the oil business and managed an oil refinery in the Virgin Islands on St. Croix. And at one point, uh, they expanded the refinery and they just clearly whacked some sort of sugar plantation. So we kids would just go out and play in the in the building grounds. And there was pottery and stuff everywhere because, you know, they just... Uh, they just leveled something. And so I basically think my first experience with survey archaeology was, oh, that was probably, I was probably about eight or nine at that stage. And, you know, by then I was doomed. I was going to be an archaeologist. <laughs> wow. So how did you, once you figured out you wanted to do archaeology, um, how did you land on Roman archaeology? 
we didn't have archaeology or anything really relevant in um, the schools I went to through through high school. So it was kind of, you know, avocational and reading in bits and pieces. But I decided to go to a college that had an archaeology degree. Um, so I ended up going to Yale. And I took a pretty wide-ranging uh, variety of courses. Uh, um so, I, you know, and then I had the chance to, I decided it was going to be Mediterranean, but I wasn't sure if it was going to be Bronze Age, Archaic. Uh, and then I had the chance to go to Cambridge on a two-year fellowship and ended up in the Faculty of Classics. And originally, I was planning to do what everyone at Cambridge was doing those days, and that was Archaic Greece, because this was the age of experiment with Antony Snodgrass. And I think I just kind of looked around and realized it was a pretty busy and crowded field. And, you know, it was more like, well, What's not getting done? So I'd been thinking about working in archaic Greece, but two things happened one summer. This must have been, oh gosh, 85, something like that. I went to Greece and I worked on a regional survey project, uh, the Nemea Valley Project, and uh, there was all this Roman pottery lying around on the ground and no one <laughs> really knew, you know, how do you date it, what do you do with it? You know, uh, and, you know, what is this thing called Roman Greece anyway? And there was no real answer to that. And later that summer, I ended up going to Crete uh, and was sitting around. We were all drinking ouzo, and someone came wandering in and said, oh, you know, they're digging again in the Idean cave, and uh, they found some early Roman stuff in there. And my brain was, you know, with ouzo, was thinking, you know, but that's a Minoan site. Why is there Roman material in a Minoan site? And, uh, you know, I sort of put those two experiences together, I think, and said, you know, Roman Greece, what, uh, what's up with Roman Greece? Mm -hmm. And I had a very uh, supportive uh, doctoral supervisor in uh, Antony Snodgrass and with Peter Garnsey. And I think I remember Antony looking at me at one point and saying, well, you know, usually one writes a thesis on something that one knows something about, and this is, would be new for you. And I said, you know, but I was young, and he was supportive, and... As they say, the rest is history. That's a great story. Mm -hmm. um, so you finish at Cambridge, mm -hmm. and how do you forge your career after that? Well, I was very lucky to go over to England and to go to Cambridge. Um, the structure is, as you know, very different from the U.S. It was pretty much, you know, you get stuck in, and you do mm -hmm. three years, and you got your doctorate, what... Uh, subsequent graduate students of mine have referred to as that just add water PhD that you have, which, <laughs> which I, I, I take with a grain of salt. Um, and I, I was fortunate as well because uh, I was able to have uh, the equivalent of a postdoc for a, a couple of years, which is a great experience. You have a little time to sure. publish and, you know, and really sort of get some stuff out and think about next steps. And then I had another stroke of luck in that I got a job at the University of Reading in the UK, uh, split quite remarkably for those days and happily for me between the departments of archaeology and of classics. Uh, mm -hmm. Both departments were, were doing quite well, were being you know led by forward-looking people, and uh, I was there for a couple of years. And I, I would put that down as a, a second formative influence after Cambridge. I was working with some really remarkable people. Uh, Richard Bradley, Mike Fulford, Andrew Wallace Hadrill. Uh, it was it was a good bunch of people. Did you ever have um, uh, like were were you were you ever like teased between classics and archaeology? Did you ever have like an identity crisis of any sort? I have fought 
very hard my entire career not to have to pick. You know, mm-hmm. uh, am I a classicist? Am I a historian? Am I an archaeologist? Am I an anthropologist? Am I a Mediterranean anthropological archaeologist? I, I've uh, tried to resist labels. Sure. Um, and that's something that I actually uh, picked up from Richard Bradley, who's a great archaeologist who does not have any degrees in archaeology. Um, he said, don't let them define you. Do your work. Ask your questions. Use what you can. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's something I've tried to bring to uh, my own students and to the Institute, this idea that right. we can do archaeology um, in the Mediterranean world on you know complex questions and that we can talk to anyone. We can talk to art historians, anthropologists, you know, you name it, that we shouldn't feel boxed in. Now, I've been very fortunate in my career, though, that I didn't have to make some choices that I think some people have had to make or feel they've had to make that, well, most of the jobs are in classics, so, you know, I will go down that route. Or, right. you know, I'd really like to come to the, the Joukowsky Institute, but I might want a job in anthropology, so I can't do that. So uh, while I think things are really improving in this space about, you know, being forced to declare who you are and what you are and what degree you have dictates your life. I think there's still issues in that area, and um, that's a, one reason I'm very proud of the Joukowsky Institute, because I think it tries very hard to uh, train people to be as broad-spectrum as possible. Mm-hmm. So two of the most common questions that like archaeologists get are, oh, you do you dig up dinosaurs? Oh, and yes. what's the coolest thing you've ever found? All right. So do yeah. you dig up dinosaurs? Uh, yeah, you are right. Those are the two dreaded, you know, and this is why many archaeologists will confess that they get on airplanes and people say, hey, what do you do? And, you know, there's that awful moment because you know that you should say, I'm an archaeologist and then shed glory and light and wisdom and knowledge. And usually I, I teach and leave it at that because they will ask you, do you mm. dig up dinosaurs? And and I say, you know, it would be no dinosaurs are not the province of archaeology. And, and, and B, for me, I don't, I, I dig as rarely as possible because I'm, I'm not very good at it and I really am a landscape kind of girl. Uh, on the question of, you know, what's the coolest thing you've ever found, um, it's ironic because for quite a lot of my career it's like I'm doing survey archaeology and we're picking up all this little crappy stuff on the ground and it, you know, it was not about the object, it was not about the thing, it was not about the artifact, it was about, you know, the larger stories we can tell and putting all the little bit, bits together. So it was not about fetishizing um, fetishizing the object and uh, and you know this kind of comes out of my age and some of the training you know that I had early on about it's not about the beautiful thing it's about the the knowledge we can gain from it now that said uh, doing a survey in uh, in Jordan uh, just north of the site of Petra you know sort of walking along and I just look down and you your eye gets in and survey archaeology is some really interesting sort of pattern recognition you don't even know quite what you're looking at but you know something is different or not quite wrong but it's like you know that's that's worth even on a really hot day bending down and picking it up and I reached down picked up what looked like a weird rock and it turned out it was a really I think the most beautiful Acheulean hand axe in the world wow. it was you know surface find uh, first one that the teams had found, though subsequently they began to turn up in the region we were, the area of the survey region we were working in. But it was, you know, it's just a kind of a weird moment of recognition. Pick it up, put it in, fit my hand beautifully, and you could just, <laughs> and you know, and it's, you know, the age on it, you know, it's it's pre-modern human. That was the oh, I get it now. I get when people say the the thrill of the discovery, the thrill of the 
that the thing that was uh, just about the first and only time i've ever had it but it was uh, oh. it was transformative yeah it was quite something yeah that's great so you mentioned petra yeah. and in pop culture more of the monumental sites get uh, depicted the Great Pyramids, yep. Petra, yep. Um, along those lines. Do yep. you have any um, experience with pop culture regarding the past and portrayals of the past that you particularly like or particularly don't like? I'm I'm very torn um, because you know, all right, the the obvious, the Indiana Jones, and uh, of course Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. There's the iconic you know, uh, choose wisely scene and, you know, they're, they're all on their horses and they're right in front of the great, the treasury at, at Petra. It's like, it's, it's, it's about as iconic as you can get. Um, and people say, how do you feel about that? And, you know, and part of it, and there's so many answers that I think, you know, it's, you can't just say it's fabulous. It, it just makes people aware of the site or, or the other, well, you know, did they do damage to the site? Is this, you know, is this trivializing? You know, there's no explanation. It's, it's misappropriation of the meaning of that particular monument in that particular site. I, uh, I tend to be a pragmatist. Uh, when I start talking about archaeology or teaching archaeology at an introductory level, you know, I say use what you can get in Indiana Jones. Until, well, at least until recently, was what we had. I gather now that they're beginning to be studies and, you know, college-age kids don't really have a clue who Indiana Jones is, so I'm not quite sure what the next iteration will be. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess I'll have to go back and check out Tomb Raider again uh, and see where we go, go with that. Um, I think archaeologists are... Uh, somewhat, un well, I wouldn't say unique, but uh, unusual in that the general public is interested in what we do, just generally quite curious about what we do. And they think they have a sense of what we do, and it may be dinosaurs, it may be Indiana Jones. And I think it would it would not be wise for us to, uh, to go purist and to go into our uh, ivory tower and just turn away from, you know, uses and invocations of such things. I think we can use them and work with them, you know. They may be wrong, but it's a starting place, and then we can teach more about what's right. I find your answer really interesting because um, people like yourself interested in, you know, what people uh, in the past thought about their own past. Right. And so if we were to come across a, um, you know, uh, a scholarly um, uh, depiction of the past in the past, we would find it cool. We'd be like, oh, huh. look, look what the Romans thought about mm -hmm. their prehistory. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, we would think mm -hmm. it was cool, mm -hmm. whether or not they were wrong. Uh, and yeah. you could say the same thing about Indiana Jones, oh, huh. but because it's happening in our own lifetime, we're you know we're, we're more pedantic about it. I hadn't really thought. Of, I I I think you know that I'll have to think more about that. I think I think you're really onto something there because it is. I mean, we know you know when the Romans are thinking about the past. It's, you know, they're manifestly, quote unquote, wrong, but we don't pass the judgment. We say, well, why were they thinking about it like that? What, you know, what was motivating, the, you know, the decisions to cast, you know, past activities, past behaviors in that particular light? And of course, it always has to do with your present. Um, so I guess, it, you know, take Indiana Jones or whatever you might and, uh, and, and, you know, and think about, you know, it's wrong, but what does it say about our own moment, our own culture? Mm -hmm. And then from that baseline point is, uh, you know, how do we, how do we expand that conversation or how do we improve the knowledge base or, or uh, how do we use it in a more productive fashion? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. I, yeah, that's clever. I'll have to think about that some more. 
what themes from the past or maybe even specific events from the past would you like to see portrayed or represented more in pop culture? <laughs> you know, it's that's that you know, you're you're talking to a, you know, a sort of a dyed in the wool walk around and pick up grotty pieces of pottery and make maps and talk about <laughs> land use and farming and manuring. One of my most cited articles is on manuring. And, you know, so it's, so people say, you know, so yeah, you know, what do you know, what do you study? And, you know, and I know they're looking for the, the big and the, the big and the glossy. And it's like, well, you know, it's very interesting what happens in the early Roman period. We get the settlement nucleation and, and lands, you know, uh, landed, landed estates to get bigger. And you're going to see the guys glazing over. Um, so I'm not sure I'm the best the best go-to on, you know, what's what's going to sell. I don't know about that. Couldn't isn't there a way to dramatize that transition like with the people who were involved? Yeah, yeah actually that's a good point cuz there you have some good guys, yeah. some get bad guys. Yeah, you have people who are I mean there's some very interesting stories uh, to get more serious. I think you, that could be told about um, you know, uh People like the Greeks moving into the or being annexed into the Roman Empire or taken into the Roman Empire because there's this kind of a judder of, uh, you know, having a respected culture, having, you know, uh, being honored by, of all people, the Romans. And then this weird sort of fact that all of a sudden you become part of, you know, the imperial project. And there's a lot of uh, thinking and by the Greeks of back then and the Romans of back then and certainly in the present day about, well, how exactly does that does that operate? And it's a question of cultural pride and political subjugation. And those, God knows, are, you know, things that continue to this day and are. So it might be an interesting way to think about such, you know, current issues. When people have asked me how I got interested in Roman Greece and there were various, uh, you know, uh, moments I had in the field that pushed me in that direction. But I also think sometimes it was being an American uh, over in England in the days of um, Ronald Reagan and Maggie Thatcher in the days of the special relationship. And there was this Mm -hmm. weird sort of paradigm that, uh, you know, there was a powerful, young, brash, you know, takeover kind of power. But they had a special relationship with this, you know, older, more civilized, mature, uh, sort of tisk tisk kind of kind of uh, entity, and that was, you know, the special relationship of Britain and the United States. And I think that inflected some of my thinking about mm. about Roman Greece. Now, mind you, I think it needed to be exploded. Um, I, I think there's a there's kind of a burden of tradition in these. Uh, sort of set in the past movies and and shows that would really have to be completely exploded. Right, I, I agree. I think I think this is why people tend to future cast them instead. You know, push push into you know push into science fiction and right. so on. I mean, for better or for worse. No, I agree. No, I totally it, agree. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But as people who like invest their entire careers in the past, it's uh, it's something I constantly think about. Like, how can we better, yeah. not even we, but how can the past better be represented in pop culture? I think about it a lot as well. And uh, and I've, um, when I'm not doing administration, I try to think about, you know, well, how can one push, you know, I, one could write another scholarly book, but is that the most helpful thing to do? <laughs> right. But it is, it is tough. What are, what are the, what are the mechanisms? I think podcasts are a great idea. They're popular. They can hit a wide ranging audience. Um, I know some people have blogs, including I think perhaps people who uh, you've podcasted in other episodes. 
Um, I talked to Brian Fagan, who's the popular archaeology writer of, you know, of all time about this. And, you know, he still thinks that books are what people will, will read. Um, you know, I, I try to watch things occasionally like Ancient Aliens or, um, you know, <laughs> the history, the things on the History Channel, which is right. quite, I find quite painful. And I'm not quite sure what the, what the, what the solution is, but I do think, I think it's probably more the younger generation that will crack this. And I do think it should be more foregrounded in graduate training and mm -hmm. early career thinking and, uh, and, you know, in terms of things like tenure and promotion, you know, incentivizing faculty, not right. just archeologists, but perhaps especially archeologists to think about these issues of outreach to the public. That's actually something I spend a lot of my time on at Michigan. Oh, that's interesting mm. because uh, I think I've said this before on a previous podcast when this came up, but, mm. you know, I had a professor who's now retired who told me that he used to um, write constantly um, blurbs about archaeology for airline magazines. Huh. And then at a certain point uh, later in his career, the provost said, you have to stop doing this. You oh have my. to. You're like, kidding. You have to write peer-reviewed journal articles only. Um, Boy. So... I'm going to make you name names when when you turn this <laughs> mic off. I want to know. You know, it's funny. Yeah. I was actually I, I, I just I flew in last night and I was looking at the Delta magazine and I was and, and I've often thought and I should just do something about this. You know, you got a captive audience and, you know, there's great pictures. People will read a story that has archaeology or gold or digging or something in it that they might, you know, they might not. They might not go there with a lot of other fields. I do think we are very fortunate in that innate appeal that we have, and we do not we don't act on it as much as we should. Right. But but I think there is that real worry that it's like, will you will you lose street cred? Will mm -hmm. you lose academic authority if you go there? And I think the answer to that is, if we stay on our high horse for much longer, you know, given the situation in higher education in the United States these days. You know, we're just going to increasingly just talk to ourselves, and eventually we will, you know, we will be marginalized even more than we already are. Right. Um, one of the things that I, I did that I really, really enjoyed that is somewhat in the same space was uh, a massive open online course, right. um, a MOOC, uh, that was called Archaeology's Dirty Little Secrets. And uh, I was very fortunate. Brown was uh, pilot testing some, and I, and I was uh, asked to do one. And... You know, I think we taught it twice, and it probably hit you know, thirty thousand people in one, some way, shape, or form. That's not as big as some MOOCs, but it would still. I figured it would take me something like three hundred years of teaching at Brown to reach that many people, and I did it in you know two eight-week courses. Mm -hmm. And you know, I th I've come to the conclusion: it, a, it reinforced my deep belief that uh, there's a broad spectrum of people um, globally who are attracted to archaeology and that they really they really really want to learn more they are hungry for information they are hungry for knowledge and but you know they're not in school anymore so mm -hmm. they think it's over it's done they can't they can't learn anything anymore or you know so they'll watch the history channel and they'll you know they'll wonder but uh, just offering them the option to no, let's really let's 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 work through this let's think this through together let's have discussion online um, yeah, it was the, probably one of the best teaching experiences of my life. Right. You know, you, we can talk about the success of MOOCs, but mm -hmm. uh, not just yours, but in general. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. But I think one thing that they do correctly and rightly um, 
righteously, if you will, <laughs> is that, you know, they cater simultaneously to people with varying levels of interest. Um, so, yep. you know, if you're be, you're begrading assignments, but, you know, you're not going to kick someone out of the right. MOOC for mm-hmm. not handing mm-hmm. in assignments and stuff like that. So, yeah, we designed it very much as the we designed the MOOC very much as a what you want is what you get. Right. And it wasn't credit. It wasn't this. Um, some people just watched videos. Some people did the whole thing, assignments and assessments and the whole nine yards. Um I believe my sister watched like one video and that was it. You know, that was, well, no, that wasn't fine, but that was, you know, okay. So, uh, so it, it was, uh, it was, and yeah, these were, a lot of this, these people were, uh, were working, you know, a lot of them had small children, you know, people were breaking their legs halfway through the class. And, you know, so it was a, you have to, you have to meet people where you find them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think one thing that, uh, isn't true of MOOCs is I think there was a great hope that they would be an enormous democratizing effect in education. And it does seem at least so far that to a great extent, uh, it's people who know about them and have access to them and come to them are still people who already have um, some basis of, of education or information. I doesn't, I don't think that means that invalidates the experiment at all, but I think it does mean we have to rethink about, you know, okay, that didn't solve the problem of people who don't have access to, to much. Now, what do we do instead? Mm-hmm. We did a, uh, a sort of a pseudo study of the participants in the MOOC, uh, which we published in a JIP volume. And, uh, just ask people when they got interested and it's kind of bimodal either people got caught you know in elementary school maybe not as young as me but elementary school or it was like they picked up something in college Mm -hmm. um you know which was kind of indicative of you know well we're losing a big chunk of people in the middle a and b you know we we should make more things available to kids on the younger you know good information available to kids on the younger side absolutely i mean most Mm -hmm. people's first uh Exposure to archaeology isn't until college, so if they get it, even then, even then, yeah. I mean, that's a you know, that's 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 a worry. Watching a lot of trends in, uh, you know, in in um, sizes of units and job replacements and globally, and you know, the humanities generally, or maybe not as threatened as some people say, but it's definitely, uh, it's definitely a stress zone. I think again, where archaeology can um, define itself slightly differently is that capacity to deal and talk with people across the academy and you know archaeology and stem we could do that in a heartbeat mm-hmm. um, archaeology and uh, steam with art you know with art as well we can do that too um, and I know there are people out there thinking about these things uh, um, I think we just have to you know probably need to connect the dots a little bit more with each other and try to think really about how to uh, invade curricula Tell me more about um, the inception of the institute. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was an existing program here at Brown mm-hmm. in, what was it, Archaeology of the Old World? The Center or? for Old World, uh, yeah. At, uh, there was a, a pre-existing uh, center called the Center for Old World Art and Archaeology, uh, COA, uh, and it was in a sort of one of these you know, house departments over on, uh, on, on Waterman Street. Um, and it, it, you know, it, it it turned out some great people, and but it had sort of run its course, and uh, pretty much everyone in the in the unit was uh, retiring or coming up to retirement, 
uh, including Martha Joukowsky. So uh, she and um, and Artie decided to, um, and I think they'd been thinking about this for a while, but until she retired, it would have been tricky to make a big endowment and to start, you know, sort of reboot that center. And um, so they, you know, uh, went to the provost, went to the president. Uh, the president at the time was uh, Ruth Simmons. And, you know, things just kind of evolved from there. Um, they were given prime real estate, a mm-hmm. building right on the, 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 the brown, uh, the brown uh, main green, uh, which is unusual for a, 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 a sort of an academic, an academic unit. And they, uh, they had some, you know, they had some, some thoughts building off what had preexisted of what it should be. But pretty much they, they said, let's find a director and see what happens from there. Mm-hmm. So what were the what were some of the challenging um, decisions you had to make or? Well, there are quite a few challenges um, setting up the Joukowsky Institute. Um, but, you know, uh, what do they say? Challenges bring opportunity. And in a way, the fact that uh, we were pretty much getting down to having to just kind of rehire, you know, the, the entire cast of uh, faculty characters, uh, you know, was, was somewhat daunting, but also was enormously exciting. It was this chance of, okay, we really have a moment now to step back and say, what do we want this institute to be? Um, talking about brands is always a little problematic, but mm-hmm. it was pretty clear that, you know, we were going to, you know, to make this really work, we had to think very carefully about, you know, what would a small institute for archaeology, uh, archaeology and the ancient world, and that was part of the the institute title from the, the very get-go uh, per the donor's uh, instructions. Um, so what did that mean, and how do we interpret it, and, you know, what kinds of people um, would fit well in there, what kinds of students would fit well in there, what kinds of classes should be taught through it. Um, what would relationships be with cognate departments, with uh, mm-hmm. with classics, with anthropology, with history of art? So there were a lot of, you know, there was a lot to learn quite quickly. Um, uh, I was fortunate to have uh, John Cherry along for the, the, the whole ride, mm-hmm. um, and he was absolutely instrumental in, in helping shape the Institute. Uh, very early on, I... Uh, uh, I had the great good fortune to uh, to hire on Sarah Sharp, the, the, uh, who's been with the institute practically the whole time. So there's been some you know long term investment and deep thinking mm-hmm. about how it how things should play. I think the fundamental uh, goals were to uh, be open and interactive with other units. That the that archaeology is a bridging discipline. I firmly believe in the idea that we can talk to just about anyone mm-hmm. on an college campus and if we can't it's there's something wrong with us mm-hmm. so uh, very much a desire to have an open door policy with archaeology and in the ancient world as kind of a, a hub that people could come in and out of and uh, encouraging students to take classes elsewhere and not just you know stay within the confines of a single building or a single discipline um, it took a little you know there had to be some choices made um, a, a small unit at a relatively small Ivy League institution can't do what some what can be done at some larger state schools or public schools. So we had to make choices. So the decision was to focus on the circum Mediterranean world uh, in 
and complex societies uh, in you know in that region, uh, and therefore you know it was like not doing you know uh, sort of you know hominid evolution or not doing um, South America or not doing and so on and so on. Right. But what we did to sort of aug- you know to augment that core was, uh, and this I think isn't one of the stronger features of the institute is a very robust postdoctoral program right. that brings in people every year. So we did have, you know, you know, people doing China or people doing South America or people doing heritage studies or now people doing uh, archaeogenetics or whatever. So there's a sort of a a, a breeze blowing through the building and blowing through archaeology uh, and the ancient world at Brown continuously. And that uh, and that was a challenge to, to set up and was only really possible because we uh, had a generous endowment. But uh, but I think the result has been quite uh, quite promising. So as a current undergrad, mm-hmm. it's really interesting because before I came to Brown, um, I didn't really have any ideas of archaeology besides the museum exhibits that me and my parents would go to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was really weird because I came to Brown and I took all these classes and I thought that this was how archaeology is taught everywhere. And then I studied abroad and it was not like that. And I hated archaeology. Oh! <laughs> and so I, oh! it was just interesting because yeah. Brown does it mm-hmm. so differently than so mm-hmm. many other places. Mm-hmm. And um, part of the wonder moving forward and doing archaeology or not was, do I actually know the skills necessary to actually dig and to like actually do mm-hmm. things like that? And so how, as the director, did you... Um, balance how Brown does it with having to fit into a larger academic world that is much different than how Brown teaches? Yeah, that's 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 a, a very percipient question. And I think it's something that, you know, I think people will challenge Brown students and say, well, you you know, but what exactly are Praxiteles' dates? Because you're not really an anthropologist, really a classicist, what you know, and, and quite what do we mean by archaeology? I, uh, you know, I just tend to think, um, what did we do? We encourage students to, you know, if there's training that you need or want that you can't get in the Institute, go take an anthro course or go take a classics course, you know, just, you know, there are ways to get those skills. I think we tried to, uh, encourage sensible summer field work opportunities. We ramped up the, uh, a course called the Archaeology of College Hill, uh, so that people could have some, um, light but you know uh, experience and you know what is it to come up with a field project and see it through to com- completion also we like that because it was something that was available to all students uh, sometimes summer field work opportunities can be expensive um, there's always a danger that archaeology which you know in its history is kind of a a rich person's game it could be very easily veer back into that territory so we you know I think it was trying to be um, without compromising on the, no, this is, you know, if you don't want to do archaeology this way, don't come to Brown, on the one hand. On, on the other hand, saying, yeah, you're going to need to demonstrate these skills to the outside world. You're going to have to convince people that, you know, that you know, that you're good at what you do and you know what you're, what you're doing. A question I like to ask people is one that I didn't, haven't asked you yet because, uh, because you signaled to me that your interest in archaeology was, came so early in your mm-hmm. life. But it's, um, you know, what do you think you might be doing today had you not gone into archaeology? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I did, I, I did have one crisis of the soul. I was graduating from college, 
And this was before I, I heard I had an opportunity to continue my studies in England. And it was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And I did make myself sort of sit back and think, all right, you know, if archaeology doesn't work out. And, uh, and it was, uh, it was probably going to be stage management. Um, I did a lot of theater Ooh. producing and backstage organization at, at college. Um, and, you know, it was kind of a weird sort of, you know, what, you know, but I, you know, in some ways I think it's, uh, I think they are actually quite opposite, you know, right. it's like, you know, what is an archaeologist, you know, especially a project director or an institute director, you know, you get a lot of interesting creative people and you have to, you know, somehow there has to be connection and there has to be uh, trains running on time. Uh, there has to be, uh, you're sort of a combination uh, organizer, cheerleader, therapist, you know, when all around you are losing their heads, dot, dot, dot. Um, so in some ways it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't so odd. And also the sense that, you know, you're, you're building, you're making space that people can do their best work in. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's kind of what I really enjoy. Yeah. I have a question for you. Sure. Do you ever, uh, have the experience where you read some of your earliest publications and you roll your eyes? <laughs> or, or, you, or, or alternatively, do you ever have experiences where you read some of your early stuff and you're like, wow, I was spot on? You know, I've I, I I tend to you know the shark never stops swimming. I I tend not to go back and reread mm. a lot of early stuff, um, or at least I didn't until lately. Now lately, I guess you know as one gets older, people say, well, you know, uh, you know, you're the you're the person who did the first big thing on Roman Greece in 1869, um, and we're doing an edited book out of a conference. Will you come over and be the you know the the discussant? And it's and it's like, oh boy, God. So yeah, I, I <laughs> so I did have I did have to go back and you know and and you know and read some some uh, bits of Graecia Capta that I don't think I'd read in in years. And um, on the you know on the whole, there are there's some juvenilia out there I'd, I'd rather not remember. And there's the few bits and pieces when it's like, oh God, I should have not agreed to write that, but mm -hmm. I did. Um, but but there's a there's 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 a body of work out there that I'm I'm pretty proud of and I'm especially proud of it because a lot of it is getting you know wildly out of date because people you know sort of said you know that's Alcock says this about such and such a pattern but my data says that's completely wrong and that's just you know and and that can drive you crazy if you mm -hmm. let it uh, so I've tried to adopt a you know I can read it and say whoo what was I thinking? Yeah. But back then, that's that's the that's what we had. That's what we thought. That's where our heads were at. And uh, the fact that now it's it's radically different, we should uh, celebrate and embrace that. Mm -hmm. Difficult though it can sometimes be. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. No, thank you. I enjoyed it. Yeah.